0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 69. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus, covering Migdal, Baal zephon the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, and the places Amara, Elim, and the wildernesses of Sin and Shur. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a Listen. This places us at the beginning of Exodus chapter 16. This week, I'm first circling back to a few of the topics I skipped over in the last few weeks, and I skipped them for two reasons. First, I was running short on time, and second, they would have broken up the geographic theme of those episodes. So, I'll begin this week with date palms and oases, and continue through reeds the Sinai Peninsula, and the unit of measure known as the Omer. And with that, let's get started. At the end of chapter 15, we're told that the Israelites came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. And we're not told much else about this, as the next sentence, the first verse in chapter 16, tells of how they left Elam. And surprisingly, there's no mention of them consuming the date fruit from the palm trees. Overall, the historic popularity of the tree is generally attributed to this fruit. More on the fruit in a minute. Humans have been growing palm trees further back than the recording of history. There is archaeological evidence of their cultivation as early as the 6th millennia BC on the Arabian Peninsula but that's not the oldest such record. Beating them by about 1,000 years was a settlement in what is today Western Pakistan. It's believed that the species originated in the Fertile Crescent and was artificially spread from there with human migration, all the way across North Africa, down to the Sub-Saharan regions, and all the way back across Southern Asia. Of course, this puts the tree in Egypt, Sinai, Canaan, up into Anatolia, and all throughout the Levant. In Egypt, the ancient Egyptians even fermented wine from the fruit. Later, the trees would be taken to Spain, and from there, much later to Mexico and California. In fact, it's a species of the palm tree that's become iconically associated with the Californian beach scene. In ancient Rome, the palm leaf was used in triumphal processions to symbolize victory. And where did the Romans get these leaves? Well, they had previously imported the seeds, growing so many that it became a popular garden tree. These trees are visible in Roman art from the era. But, due to the more temperate Italian climate, the trees that they grew would bear no fruit. So, almost all had grown from imported seeds and seedlings. More on the seeds in a bit. It wasn't just the Romans who would use the leaves in their parades and as symbols. We also see this in both the Old and New Testaments. In Psalms, chapter 92, we're told that the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. They were also depicted in sculptures in the Second Jewish Temple in Jerusalem, on Jewish coins, and in the sculpture of synagogues, and used as decorations during the Feast of the Tabernacles. In the New Testament, Palm branches were scattered before Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is seen in John chapter 12, where it reads, The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. It's from this passage where the term Palm Sunday originates. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the Sunday before the Passover. And the people, at least according to this passage, spread palm leaves before him. Matthew and Mark wrote that the people put out their cloaks and unspecified tree branches on the road. Luke makes no mention of any sort of branches, only cloaks. And about those seeds, they have been shown to have an unbelievable shelf life. A specimen that is likely a Judean date palm was successfully sprouted after what is thought to have been accidental storage. How long was it sitting on the shelf? About 2,000 years. In 2005 AD, this preserved 2,000 year old seed sprouted. This is the oldest verified human assisted germination of a seed. The palm tree was named Methuselah, obviously and in 8 years grew to 5 feet, or 1.5 meters tall. In the next 3 years, it grew another 3 feet, or about a meter. The last published record I could find was from May of 2015, when it was just over 8 feet, or 2.5 meters tall, and was producing pollen. Given this, scientists are really unsure how long a properly stored seed would last. At least 2,000 years. And if they will last that long, then who knows? As for the trees, they grow to be about 70 feet or 22 meters tall. The fruit is an oval-shaped cylinder up to 3 inches or 7 centimeters long and about an inch or 2.5 centimeters in diameter. When dried, the fruit is extremely sweet, consisting of about 75% sugar. So, a good source of calories which is especially important when you are wandering through the desert, or just in general when you can't head down to your local grocery or restaurant for an easy-to-obtain meal. And these date palms, which are seemingly native to the region, appear to be hybrids of two regional species, as revealed through genetic testing. This suggests that human cultivation of the tree has been occurring for thousands of years. Back in the Bible, date palms were of particular importance since they were essentially domesticated for food production. In the books of both the Old and New Testaments, dates are mentioned at least 50 times. They are also in the Islamic Quran at least 20 times. In that culture, dates coupled with either yogurt or milk are traditionally the first foods consumed after the sun has set during Ramadan. Also in the Quran, Allah told Mary to eat dates after she gave birth to Jesus. This is the beginning of a similar tradition for new mothers in Muslim society. And that's it for date palm trees. Back in Exodus, in the same passage, is mentioned an oasis, though it wasn't directly mentioned, but instead revealed as a place in the desert with palm trees and springs. The word oasis is merely the term we would use to describe such a place. And the water is the key, and the necessary starting point. This fresh water is sourced either from an underground river or a natural aquifer. Usually the infrequency of rain eliminates oases from being merely precipitation accumulating on the surface, at least in this dry region of the world. Instead, the rain feeds subterranean aquifers which store the water, protecting it from the reaches of the never-ceasing sun. The aquifers usually consist of a layer of impermeable rock with hollows to retain the moisture. The rock layer would be overtopped by sand. If the surface water is persistent enough, eventually some vegetation will take hold, and if you're lucky enough, maybe even 70 palm trees, and with the plant life, possibly animals will make a home there, or at least make it a stop on a migratory journey, like a bird who, when stopping for water, might just leave, um, behind, perhaps a rearward dropping of a seed previously consumed at a different location. After this happens enough times, the next thing you know, several dozen palm trees appear, As time pressed on, human intervention began to shape the nature of these islands of agriculture in a sea of sand. The water was used to irrigate as much of the land around the spring as the water volume would allow. The shade of the palms allowed the planting of other crops underneath their canopies. The next tallest were smaller fruit-bearing trees, such as peach, plum, and apricot. The next layer down would have figs and olives. And finally, close to the ground, grains such as barley, wheat, and millet, along with vegetables, would be grown. All of this to attempt to use every drop of water for human consumption or to grow produce. As you probably would suspect, these oases became important for groups traveling through the barren desert, not just for those escaping bondage. They also provided vital rest and replenishment for trading caravans through the desert, And if you think it through, they became important politically and militarily. After all, armies on the move needed replenishment too. So, control over strategically located oases led to control over trade routes. Vital oases were found all over the region from Libya to Egypt to Arabia and even through the Silk Road that led through Central Asia. And that's it for oases. Next, and since I touched on it last week, and it's appeared a few times in the text already, it's time to cover the reed plant. Of course, in the Hebrew text, Moses parted the sea of reeds, but also when he was a baby. In Exodus chapter 2, it reads, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. End quote. And given that the Egyptian reed plant was the source material for papyrus, the plant actually appears in that passage twice. The reed itself is a perennial aquatic flowering plant, sometimes called Nile grass. It's native to Africa and forms tall stands of reed-like swamp vegetation in shallow water. The plant is extremely tolerant and can grow in both full and partial sun, flooded swamps, the shores of lakes, all throughout the perimeter of the southern Mediterranean countries. The grass is leafless and extremely tall reaching heights of up to 16 feet, or 5 meters. The stems shoot upward from the base in multiple clumps, and the stems themselves are roughly triangular. When the plants are immature, they are covered in a reddish-brown, papery, triangular leaf that resembles a scale. So, they're not truly leafless, but close enough. On the outside is this tough exterior, and inside is a thick, woody flesh. Each stem is topped by a dense cluster of thin, bright-green, thread-like stems, with each top stem about 8 inches or 25 centimeters long. When young, these stem ends have the appearance of a feather duster. The feather duster heads are excellent nesting sites for many species of birds. As in most grasses of this type, pollination is by wind, not by insects such as bees. The feather duster head is replaced by a greenish-brown flower cluster as the plant matures in the growing season. Then a brown, nut-like seed appears. These seeds, when mature, fall into the water for distribution. In ancient Egypt, the plant thrived, but due to modern agricultural encroachment and reduced flooding due to upstream dams, the numbers of the original plant have been greatly reduced to the point of endangerment, at least in the Nile Delta. It has become an invasive species elsewhere, even in Florida, California, Louisiana, and Hawaii. Not only does it serve as the raw material for papyrus, one of the first forms of paper, but it's highly buoyant to the point that it can be woven together to form riverboats, are merely baskets to place babies in. Young grass can be cooked and eaten, similar to a hardy grain, well, more like roughage. The root of the plant is very woody and was fashioned into bowls and utensils, or burned for fuel. The stems were also woven and used for ship sails, mats, cloth, rope, blankets, and sandals. The 4th century B.C. Greek writer, Theophrastus, claimed that the Greek king, Antagonus, made the rigging of his fleet from papyrus. So, not just the Egyptians put it to use. There have been modern naysayers to all of the uses. In the 20th century Norwegian adventurer, Thor Heyerdahl, what a name, certainly one set up for epic adventures. Well, Thor set out to prove the naysayers wrong. He built two boats from Papyrus, named the Ra and the Ra II. But his goal wasn't just to build the boats. He set out to sell them from Egypt to North America, hoping to prove that the ancient Egyptians could have done the same feat. He actually did sell his second boat from Morocco to Barbados in 1970, but only after getting so lost on the high seas that he needed a UN rescue. And, of course, he knew something that any ancient Egyptian probably didn't. There was land on the other side of the horizon. Next up is the Sinai Peninsula, the small triangular spit of land between the Red and Mediterranean Seas, and also between the African and Asian continents. The land is currently under the control of Egypt, but over the course of the last several thousand years, far too many countries and empires have controlled it to recount. Overall, this peninsula is about 23,000 square miles, or 60,000 kilometers. This makes it roughly the size of the U.S. state of West Virginia, or slightly larger than the country of Croatia. It's linked to the African continent by the Isthmus of Suez, which is only about 78 miles, or 125 kilometers, wide. It was over this land bridge that all land-based trade had to pass. So, whichever regime controlled this narrow band controlled the trade between the two continents and all of the cultures that those encompassed, at least until regular seafaring became a thing. Surprisingly, the peninsula is one of the coldest regions in Egypt, owing to its high altitudes and mountainous terrain. It's so cold that in the winter temperatures in some of the towns can reach 3 Fahrenheit, which is 16 degrees below zero Celsius. The geography is about what you would expect. High mountains with peaks of up to almost 8,700 feet are over 2,600 meters. The mountain that is thought to be the biblical Sinai peaks at 7,500 feet or just under 2,300 meters. At the base of this mountain is St. Catherine's Monastery, which is near the town of St. Catherine, Egypt. Makes sense. The monastery is controlled by the somewhat autonomous Church of Sinai, which itself is part of the larger Eastern Orthodox Church. The buildings were built between 527 and 565 AD, making it one of the oldest working Christian monasteries in the world. Its construction was ordered by the Roman Emperor Justinian, It also contains the world's oldest continually operating library. The library houses many unique books, including the Syriac, Sinaiticus, and, at least until 1859, the Codex Sinaiticus. This Codex Sinaiticus is sometimes called the Sinai Bible, and was written around 330 AD, making it one of the oldest versions of the entire Bible. Well, almost the entire Bible— as some portions are missing. It does contain about half of the Greek Old Testament, the complete New Testament, the entirety of the deuterocanonical books, along with the Epistle of Barnabas, and portions of the Shepherd of Hermes. Unfortunately, the text is now in four separate locations. The British Museum, the Leipzig University Library, the Russian National Library, and some fragments remain at the monastery. Back to the peninsula. The little rain that falls on the peninsula has cut deep canyons. Sloping down from the mountains is a plateau that begins at about 3,000 feet, or around 900 meters elevation, and slopes towards the Mediterranean. On both the western and northern sides are deserts characterized by dunes, so Overall, tall mountains, deep canyons, and deserts. Not very hospitable. Well before the Israelites wandered into Sinai, well, really well before Joseph followed by his family immigrated to Egypt, the Egyptians were mining various precious metals and minerals on the peninsula. These included turquoise and copper. The mining of turquoise is believed to have begun around 3500 B.C., which would have been about 2,000 years before Joseph arrived in Egypt. The mining came to a halt around 1000 BC, which would have been well after the Exodus. So, it's a safe assumption that while the Israelites were wandering in the region, the Egyptians continued their turquoise mining operations. On the western side of the peninsula, Egypt had a fortress named Tajaru, which was located essentially on the road to Canaan. This was one of the many defensive positions the empire would use to attempt to halt any invaders. What makes this one noteworthy isn't that, but that it was also a prison built to house hardened criminals who were banished to this unforgiving outpost, their Van Diemen's land. And that's it for the Sinai Peninsula. I've got a little bit more time left, and I'm skipping ahead in Exodus chapter 16, to cover one more random topic, and that's the Omer, as mentioned in the passage concerning manna from heaven. Beginning in verse 14, it reads, When the lair of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who had gathered much had nothing over, and those who had gathered little had no shortage, they gathered as much as each of them needed. Quote. From the passage, we can see that it's a unit of measure. It's actually a unit of dry measure. There are a bunch of equivalencies which will make no sense to us, like it being equal to one-tenth of an efa or just over seven logs. I'll skip over all of those. Overall, it was just under one U.S. gallon, or about 3.6 liters at least according to the early 20th century Jewish Encyclopedia. A different publication, the 21st century Jewish Study Bible, lists it as being about 2.5 quarts, or 2.3 liters. Sometimes you may see the word omer translated as sheaf, meaning an amount of grain large enough to require bundling. In the text, it seems that an Omer was the amount of manna a typical person could eat in a day, and that's it for Omer's. The next natural topic is that of manna, but there's not enough time in this episode to do it justice. So, no manna today. It will have to wait till next week. Be sure to join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.